I would like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of uh, Philippians. This morning, uh, we are going to look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. So we are going to consider uh, one verse uh, today, and I hope to show you why that's appropriate, a good thing. Uh, but that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. I would like uh, to begin the reading in uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 20 and uh, read through verse 3 of uh, chapter 4. So uh, Philippians, uh, beginning in chapter 3, verse 20. Before we hear God's word, if you would, join your hearts together with me in prayer. Let's pray together, friends. Our Father and our God, we look forward to the day when from death we are free, and we will sing of your love for eternity. We thank you, Father, for the salvation that you have given us in your Son. We pray that you would help your people to uh, keep our minds set on those things that are above and lead us by your Spirit until we attain the resurrection from the dead. We pray that you would do this by the preaching of the gospel. We do, do this by the hearing of your word, that we might be led by it, that we might be changed by it the praise of your glory. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Beloved, this is uh, the word of God. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Udia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord uh, remains forever. Well, it may seem strange to uh, focus on one verse here in this uh, letter. We could have easily taken uh, we we could have easily taken up verse one of chapter four with the previous section. Or we could have taken it up with the next two verses. And so I could have included it last week, or I could include the next two verses after it today as one whole sermon. But I hope to show that focusing on this one verse here is, is good. If you look in your English Bibles, and mine, mine does this, you might see an actual subtitle before verse 2. So mine says, Exhortation, Encouragement. This, is, this, of course, is an interpretive move on the makers of this particular Bible. The subtitle signals the beginning of a new section or a new theme, a new train of thought. And so I do think we have this in verse 2. In verse 2 of chapter 4, I do think Paul begins a new train of thought. There, Paul directly addresses two women by name, Udia and Syntyche. There was an obvious disagreement between these two women that Paul was aware of and that he felt the need uh, to address. These women 
must have played, and of course we'll look at this next week, Lord willing, uh, these women uh, must have played a significant part in the life of this church, so much so that Paul felt that it was worthy enough to mention the disagreement that they had in this letter. It could have been in the Philippian church at this time that their disunity, the disunity between these two women was actually causing problems. Paul knew this, and so he felt the need to address it. In fact, he did address it. He does address it in the next session uh, section. Now, this is the Apostle Paul, mind you. This letter would have been read publicly in the churches or in the church. This letter is, in that way, then, like a sermon. If, imagine if your pastor got up into the pulpit and said your name and the name of someone else telling you both to get along in front of everybody else. Now, this has never happened as far as I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, and I, if I can control it, it will never happen. <laughs> I don't think that's appropriate. But you can see the force of this here. Their names are stated, and they will be read in public. I know that I, personally, wouldn't want to hear my name in that context. And so this was not an easy thing, both for Paul to have to do and for this congregation to hear. But Paul obviously felt like he had to do it, because he did do it. So this must have been serious in Paul's mind. So that's where we're headed. Paul felt this was necessary because he loved the church. He knew like what he knew that what persistent disunity, he knew what persistent disunity could do to a bot to a body. The way in which a persistent disunity to, between two prominent members could threaten the disunity of the whole body. And so he addresses that in the next section. And so you have the repeated emphasis in this letter on unity. And so instead of coming right out And naming these two women, he softens the blow here in verse 1. He does this by reassuring this congregation that he loves them. What he's about to do in calling these women out comes from a place of love. So that's one thing that he's doing, I think, in verse 1. The other thing that we should appreciate here is that this verse can also be connected to what was said right before it in chapter 3. There, Paul said, when Jesus comes again, our bodies will be transformed like his glorious body. We will have glorified bodies then, when Jesus comes again. That day is future. It's not yet, it has not yet been experienced by us as God's people. It's in the future. But it is certain. It is a certain day. That is a certain transformation that will happen for every believer when Jesus comes again. On that day, in glorified bodies, like Christ's glorified body, there will be no more disunity. There will be no more division between husband and wife, between friend and friend in the church, between leader and leader in the church. Whatever you have... That will be gone. That's where we're headed. And it's certain when Jesus comes again. It will be this way because, when we, then, because then we will be perfected. We will be glorified, sinless, no longer able to sin. And that's what causes disunity is ultimately sin. 
pride. Then, though, that will be gone. We will no longer be able to sin, and we will then only be able to love one another. But that day is future. We don't experience that yet. And so thus, as a result, in light of that certain future, Paul says, stand firm until that day. Stand firm in the Lord. And that's what he says in this verse. Stand firm until that day in your commitment to Christ and your commitment to living a life worthy of the gospel. And in this context, that means at least to be unified. I hope you can see how then this verse ties, can tie in with what was just said and it also prepares us for what is coming. This verse is filled with loving and endearing words. The main command in this verse is stand firm in the Lord. That's the command that we are given here. But the command is buried under a pile of loving and emotionally charged terms. You have to dig through these terms to get to the main command, which is stand firm in the Lord. Now, Paul uses these terms to communicate to this church how much he loves them. That's what he wants to get across here. Telling them to stand firm in the Lord. He's about to call out two women in the church, but he loves them. And he wants them to know this. There are a couple of things that are quite clear uh, in this letter as a whole. The first is that Paul, despite being in chains, and perhaps more so because of his chains, Paul is joyful. That's one thing that is very clear in this letter. He mentions joy and rejoicing many times throughout this relatively short letter. And one of these references to joy is found here. He calls the church, my joy, my joy and crown. That's one thing that comes out very clearly in this letter, that Paul is joyful, despite his chains and perhaps even because of his chains. The second thing that comes out in this letter, I think, uh, that is quite clear, is that Paul loves this church. He loves the Philippian church. In chapter 1, he began the letter like this. He says, God is my witness. I long for you all with the compassion or with the affection of Christ. Of course, Paul loved all the churches. He loved all the churches. His enduring love for all the churches comes out in one way or another in all of his writings. You might even think about the Corinthian church. Go look at 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian church was rife with divisions and all kinds of problems. That's why it's so long. There was all sorts of problems in the Corinthian church that Paul had to address. Paul says up front in that letter, however, I give thanks to my God always for you. He loved them. Still, with all the problems that were there and all the problems that that church may have caused him, he loved them. And he ends that letter by saying this, my love be with you all. And so, make no mistake, Paul loves all the churches. But it does seem that because of the Philippians' consistent support of his ministry, because of their sacrifice, because of their loving obedience, Paul did not hesitate to let this particular body know, the Philippians, know how much he loved them and appreciated them. They had supported him. They continued to support him. And he expresses that love in this letter. He wants them to know how much he appreciates their love towards them. And so he begins by addressing them here as my brothers. Now this word in the original, uh, along with 
the English translation here is masculine, brothers. But it refers to all the members in the church, every member, brothers and sisters, not just the men in the church. So in this context, it's simply like saying you all. He's addressing everyone in the church. Of course, this is not just any group of people. This is the church because we've all been adopted into God's family in the Son. We are all members of God's family in the Son. We are all family members in God's household. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's appropriate to refer to one another in this way. So it's appropriate to address one another as family members, brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's appropriate then also to love each other as such. Now twice, Paul refers to the Philippians as his beloved here. They are his family members and they are his beloved. He says, my brothers whom I love, or the beloved, Stand firm in the Lord, beloved. And so he wraps the whole command here with telling the church that he loves them. I love you. You are my brothers and sisters. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. For Paul, his declaration of love for this church was not merely an emotional feeling. I want us to understand this as we think about the topic of love in the Bible. When Paul tells this church that he loves them, this is not simply an emotional feeling, and these were not simply empty phrases uh, that he threw out there to make himself look good or make them feel good. Now, of course, there are emotions involved in this, but it wasn't just that. This was love that was backed up and really grounded upon action. That is where this comes from. When he says, my beloved... When he says, I love you, my, my brothers and sisters whom I love, those are statements grounded upon and backed up by loving action. Now, we saw this a couple of weeks ago uh, in the sermon over uh, on Christmas Day. In this is love, what are we told by John? In this is love that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Action. And this is love. God sent his son. And then his son died for us. Those are actions. Events. Loving events. Loving actions that ground the love that God has for us. And so we're never, we never question whether or not God loves us because his son died for us. And so you see there the relationship between action and the statements about love in the Bible. The Father sends the Son, and the Son gives himself as a substitutionary sacrifice. In this is love. This is the love of which Paul speaks here. This kind of love. When the church heard Paul call them, my beloved, they knew that he meant it. They knew that he meant it because of what he said, yes, it's important to say it, but also because of what he did and what he continued to do for them. He was in chains for the church, and even while in chains, rather than bemoan his situation, he continued to minister to the church. He wrote this letter in chains. He's addressing division between two women by this letter while he's in prison. Now, shouldn't he be complaining about his situation? He doesn't. He, in fact, uses his situation to continue to serve the church, to love them. 
And so you can understand that when Paul, in particular, says, I love you, they know that he means it. When he calls them my beloved, it, it hits home. They know and they hear that, they, that Paul truly loves them. Now, to say, I love you, to say, you are my beloved, is important to do. We are to tell each other that. Tell each other that we love one another. But we also have to back that up with loving action, self-denying, sacrificial action that gives substance to those words. And so both are needed. Both are needed in our relationships uh, with each other, friends. Verbal expressions of love backed by loving action. That's what Paul gave to the church. Paul says he loves them, they are his family members, and he longs for them. In chapter 1, uh, Paul used the verb form of the same word that's translated here, longing, he longs for them. He says in chapter 1, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. That's the verb form of the same word that's used uh, here in this verse. The saints in Philippi, the family members, the brothers and sisters that he loves and longs for, would certainly include at least seeing them again in person. I long for you. His, we might think of it as his heart going out to them. We use language uh, like that. But I think at least this means on some level he wants to see them. He wants to be with them in person. I yearn for you. I, I long for you. This is the kind of affection, friends, that uh, we see that Christ has for us. What did Christ do? He left heaven to enter into our world as one of us, to live as one of us and yet without sin. And he's coming again to be with us physically in person. That's the day we look forward to. We're not looking forward to a day when we get to watch Jesus return on TV or on our phones. We will be with him in person, each one of us. That's what we long for. And so we see this type of love from our Savior, Jesus Christ himself. And he's also given us uh, his spirit who dwells inside of us. And so as members of Christ's body, we love in the spirit and we desire to be together. We long for one another, to see each other in person, to have fellowship with one another, to be together uh, physically. Now, Paul mentions this in chapter 2. He says, I hope to send Timothy and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. He's not with this church. He's physically away from them. And so I think on some level, at least, and perhaps this is what he's talking about when he says, I I long for you, I yearn for you. He wants to see them. He wants to be with them in person. I trust that I myself will physically come to be with you also. Paul also said that Epaphroditus had been longing for the Philippians. Because he knew that they were distressed about his sickness. Remember, Epaphroditus has been sent to Paul. And on the way he got sick. And he heard that the Philippians also got word that he was sick. And he expressed to Paul at some point, he longed to be back with them so he could encourage them and show them, look, I'm okay. I'm healthy again. Everything's fine. And so Paul sent Epaphroditus to Philippi to be with them in person. Now, This is, I think, what is behind Paul saying here. I long for you. He wants to see them, to be with them. Now, there may be, in our context, there may be some benefits to live streaming worship services. 
But it's no replacement, friends. It's no replacement for being physically present with other believers. And to hear from Christ, to worship him in person, this is one of the ways in which we express our love for each other, being with each other. Paul wanted to be with them. He says, you are my beloved. He was with them. That is part of what it means uh, for Paul to say, I long for you. And it's also part of what it means for Paul to say, I love you and for those words to mean something. My beloved, we should long to be with each other, friends. To be with one another in person is something that should be natural for us as Christians. Finally, Paul refers to this church as his joy and crown. Now, the joy and crown that Paul speaks of here are associated with the age to come. You might think about 1 Thessalonians. This is what Paul says there. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Same words there, joy and crown. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Eternal joy. Eternal happiness with the Lord when he comes again. That is what is in view here on some level. He says there, What is our joy and crown of boasting before Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Now Paul calls this church here in this letter, my joy. That is to say that he delights in them. He delights in serving them. This is fun for him. On some level, of course he suffered, but he enjoys doing this. He delights in serving the church and serving, ministering the gospel to his people. He delights in serving, with, serving them. He delights in being with them. These people, after all, make up Christ's body. This is who we are. Paul knew that, understood that. This is Christ's body. This is his joy. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed what he did. Paul delights in serving the church and the power of the Spirit, for the church is his joy, my joy. Now, this is something that Paul experienced while he was alive. He said, he said it here in this letter. But Paul also extended his view towards Christ's second coming and the heavenly joy that will be experienced then. You are my joy now. I enjoy serving you now. I enjoy being with you ministering the gospel to you, writing to you, there is a greater joy to come. And I know it's coming. I look forward to that joy as well. In fact, it's that joy that intrudes into this present day as I serve you. This is what Paul essentially was saying. So, friends, for us, we should never forget, we should never forget that as individual Christians, we will experience joy with Christ, individually, yes, but we will experience joy with Christ together, with all the rest of God's people, together. It's a communal joy. It's an eternal joy that is for you individually, yes, but it's an eternal joy that is really for you as part of a community, a communal joy. And it's a joy that we will experience in person, friends, together, physically, present with one another and with Christ. And so Paul says to the church, you are my joy. The crown of which Paul speaks brings to mind here the image of an athlete receiving the victor's wreath around his head. 
This is what an athlete would receive in the first century. This is like uh, the first century version of a gold medal. This crown, that, or the word that's used here, it's used in that way. The victor's crown was a symbol of honor. To put it on your head it was a symbol of honor. The crown itself bestowed honor and dignity upon the one wearing the crown. It set that person apart from the others who did not have a crown. For Paul, the people that he served in the church were like that crown. They were like a crown of honor to him. They brought him dignity. They made him feel as though he was set apart, as he was standing on the victor's pedestal. That is what he says to them. That is how he, this church, these, the people that he served, made him feel as if he had won the race and received the victor's crown. In other words, he considered it a great privilege to serve them. Not only did serving them, the gospel, serving this church bring him joy, but he also considered it a great privilege and an honor to be put in this position to serve them. They were members of Christ's body, after all. What greater honor is that? To serve members of Christ's body. That was the privilege that was given to Paul. And so he says to them, in that way, you are my crown. He looked forward to the day, too, friends, when the church would be presented to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. That was his whole goal, to present the church whom he served spotless, blameless to Jesus Christ, to be with him forever. In that way, then, the church was his crown. Now, friends, on that day, all of us, each one of us, Paul included, will receive a crown of glory, each one of us. We will receive a crown of glory from Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who wore a crown of thorns before he was crucified will place on your head a crown of glory, the victor's crown. That is what we all look forward to. Now, beloved, my brothers and sisters, whom I love, this is how Christ regards you. These are Christ's words to you, the church. He loves you. He delights in you. He is present with you by his spirit. He is coming again to be with us physically forever in person, in, his, in a body, a glorified body. To him, friends, we are Christ's beloved. That is hopefully what we can learn from this, and thus we are called to stand firm. He loves us. Stand firm in the Lord. He loves us. We are his beloved. And this, of course, is how Paul regarded the church, and this is how, friends, we are to regard one another as well. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forever.